0: Sunday, the 6th of October 1974. Two nurses leave Brisbane to hitchhike to Dubbo in New South Wales. They would never make it. This is the case of the murder of Lorraine Wilson and Wendy Evans, part two. I'm your host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi Islanders, well tonight we continue the case from last week of the murders of Lorraine Wilson and Wendy Evans. Just before I start, most of tonight's episode has come directly from the coroner's inquest. In fact, I'll be reading quite a bit directly from it. Also, I didn't mention it last week, but there is a book you might be interested in by Lorraine's brother Eric Wilson, titled The Echo of Silent Dreams which goes into the case, and it was followed up by Ricochet of Echoes, which goes further into the Coronial Inquest. Both of these books are out of print, as I could see, but I was able to buy them on Amazon for the Kindle. But before we get into part two tonight, I'll do a brief recap of last week's episode. So Lorraine and Wendy were mates working and studying together at St. George Hospital, And in August 1974, they decided to take holidays together after spending some time with their respective families. Lorraine and Wendy left Sydney where they took a bus tour together, which took them from Sydney to Brisbane, Townsville, Mount Isa, Catherine, Darwin and Alice Springs. They then headed to Lorraine's place in Dubbo. They got back to Dubbo on the 27th of September. Lorraine and Wendy planned to drive to Brisbane in Lorraine's Volkswagen. They left on the 30th of September, but they had car trouble along the way, and the Volkswagen was towed to Wendy. The mechanic told them it would probably take about a week or so to get the parts and fix the Volkswagen, so Lorraine and Wendy hitchhiked the rest of the way to Wendy's sister's place, Susan, at Camp Hill, just outside the Brisbane CBD, and they got there the same night. Lorraine and Wendy stayed in Brisbane for the weeks uh, doing shopping, eating out, having a drink at night, typical behaviour when you're on holidays. Now it looks like the mechanic fixing the VW couldn't give her a firm date when it would be ready, so Lorraine and Wendy decided to go directly back to Dubbo, as they needed to be back at work in Sydney by the 10th of October. Lorraine and Wendy told Wendy's sister Susan that they planned to hitchhike back to Dubbo, Susan suggested getting a train or bus back to Dubbo rather than hitchhike, but Lorraine and Wendy didn't want to spend the money. Susan did offer to pay the fare, still Lorraine and Wendy decided to hitchhike, but they didn't elaborate on what route they would take. So at around 11am on Sunday the 6th of October, Lorraine and Wendy left Susan's to hitchhike back to Dubbo. By the next Saturday, the 12th of October, Lorraine's mum had not heard from her and she thought they must have gone directly back to Sydney. Despite police issuing photos of the young women, they were not to be found until the 25th of June, 1976, when an elderly couple found their remains in the bush at Murphy's Creek. They'd both been brutally murdered. Okay, so now we get to the inquest in 2012-2013, where I will read out some of the witness statements and find out more about the Laurie and Hilton families. As I said last week, suspicion had fallen on the Laurie and Hilton families, and a number of women came forward making claims that themselves and others had been raped and assaulted by members of these families. Now, some of these attacks were reported to police, but not effectively investigated. Some were very young and unsure of their right to make a criminal complaint and had suffered abuse or neglect within their families and so they were accepting of it. Others were too terrified to go to police. Now, in the 60-minute story that you can search for online, Desmond Edmondson, who knew of and socialised with the Hilton and Lurie families, said that some of the girls would be repeatedly raped, taken back to their houses, and their families would be told not to call police or they would come back and sort them out. They would terrify these families and they wouldn't go to the police. Now, the gang that would feature in this inquest, as I said before, is the Laurie and Hilton families, plus a few of their associates. There's Alan Shorty Laurie, There's Alan Ungi Laurie, that's Alan with two L's. There's Desmond Hilton, Larry Charles, James O'Neill or Jimmy O'Neill, Donnie Laurie, Kingsley Hunt, there's Willie Baker, Artie Laurie, and the worst of them all, Wayne Boogie Hilton. Now some of the evidence given at the inquest will help build a bigger picture of what was going on in Toowoomba in the 70s, and it's not only horrifying, but it's, it's quite disgusting. One witness called Anne had this to say. Anne was 19 in 1974 when she was allegedly raped by Shorty Lawrence, or Shorty Laurie, and another man. She said she accepted a lift home after being in the Central Business District on a Saturday night. She didn't know the make of the car, but said it was a light-coloured sedan. Instead of taking her home, they drove to open ground behind the Downlands College. They stopped the car, the other man got in the back seat and Shorty locked the doors. They then both raped her, after which they dropped her across the road from her home. She told her father and the matter was reported to police. She was examined by a government medical officer and her clothes were taken. She said she never heard any more about it and she was too scared to ring the police. She said, After it happened to me, I heard rumours that it was well known that they'd done it to lots of other girls. In describing Shorty, she says, I remember Shorty having blondish shoulder-length hair, slim build, and he was of average height. There's another witness, Gail. She said she was 16 in 1969 when she came into contact with Ian Laurie, Gordon Laurie and Shorty Laurie. She said, They'd get you in a car and offer to give you a lift home, but you'd never get home. When you got in the car, there was no car door handles inside or window winders. And when you ask why, they would say they're repairing the doors. That's why we couldn't get out of the car. And then they would take you out to Highfields Road between Toowoomba and Highfields. There, there used to be a bush paddock paddock out there And then in the meantime, they would give you alcohol until you were drunk and you couldn't hold yourself up. You were so relaxed. You were nearly paralysed from the warm beer. That's when they would take advantage of you. They took my pants off. I didn't. I remember seeing them pour alcohol on their old fella before they would rape me. I don't know why they would rape me. They took turns in raping me. I can't remember how many times I was raped by them and the other. There was Kerry Ann. She was six when her mother left the family. She was sent to live with an aunt. She was then sent to boarding school in Brisbane. She did not settle well at school and left when she was 15. She went back to the family farm but did not fit in there as a result of conflict with her stepmother. Soon after, in 1974, she ran away in the vicinity of Gundawindi and was picked up by a truck driver. Of the truck driver, Kerry ann said, I think his name was Laurie. I think Laurie was his first name. I just knew him as Shorty. He drove me in his truck to an isolated spot and repeatedly raped me. She claimed after this initial incident, she stayed with associates of that man and on numerous occasions, members of what she referred to as the Hilton Gang also raped her. She claimed other people, including Kingsley Hunt, participated in these crimes. She claimed a gang of men comprised of Hiltons, lorries, and others roamed around Toowoomba and Gundawindi seeking women for sex. She said they habitually convened overnight parties around campfires in a riverbed near Gundawindi, and Kerry anne claimed that on numerous occasions she was raped by numerous men. I was just brutally bashed with whatever these thugs could use on me, and repeatedly raped by all of them, by the gang. She claimed these types of parties were from time to time convened at Murphy's Creek. Kerry anne also said, I can never remember being shoved into the boot, but I can certainly remember that happened with a couple of local girls. One image keeps coming up, and it is of a blonde-haired girl, my age, 14 or 15 at the time, with the ringlets. Now we get on to Desmond Hilton. He was related to Wayne Boogie Hilton and Trevor Hilton. Throughout his life, he associated with them and members of the extended Laurie family. In 2008, he was interviewed by Detective Senior Sergeant Kerry Johnson and claimed that about the time of the murders... Alan shorty Laurie, Alan Ungie Laurie, Larry Charles and Jimmy O'Neill arrived where he was staying in Toowoomba and told him they'd given two girls a good hiding down the, actually, they didn't say down Murphy's Creek. They just said they'd given two girls a hiding down the bottom of the range. He said he took that to mean they'd done to the girls what they'd done every weekend for a number of years. That is, taken somebody out, given them a hiding, raped them, and then when they got what they wanted off them, they just left them there. Now, this is pretty damning evidence or a damning testimony from Desmond Hilton. He's, he's related to these guys, and he told police this. So now we get on to Daryl Sutton. He lived in Toowoomba in the 1970s. He knew members of the Hilton and Laurie families. He used to socialise with Wayne Boogie Hilton, Teddy Laurie, Alan Shorty Laurie and Arthur Laurie. He claims to have seen Boogie assault men and women on numerous occasions. He said, I remember seeing him hit girls in the face and about the body. I don't know why he used to belt them. I think it was just to get his own way, to get what he wanted. He was renowned as a girl basher. So then, we get to Trevor Hilton. Now, he was a cousin or uncle of Wayne Boogie Hilton. He gave evidence that on a number of occasions he saw Shorty Laurie, Ungie Laurie and Wayne Hilton assault women and push them into cars. He said those three also carried tyre levers, wheel spanners and or baseball bats in their cars to use as weapons. He said they openly skidded of forcing women to have sex with them. Now, Trevor's also a relative of them, of this gang. He's he's part of it as well. And he is given testimony against them. Then we get to Wayne Hilton's former wife. She gave a statement to police in 1990 that dealt in part with his propensity for violence. She said he would get very violent when drinking. He would fight anyone and had no qualms about hitting women. She also said, Wayne was very active sexually both by day and at night time and whether he was drunk or he was sober. Whenever he wanted sex, he would just take it, whether consented or not. I resisted him on some occasions, but he just punched me up and held me down and forced me into sex. So Islanders, from just these few accounts, it looks like the Laurie and Hilton families, well at least some of the members of those two families, But especially Wayne Boogie Hilton held a terrifying grip on the town. So now we've seen part of the family and what they get up to. When the girls went missing, there were sightings reported to police of Lorraine and Wendy in Brisbane and Toowoomba. Now there was a bus driver who told police that when he heard the women's bodies had been found, and now that's two years after they went missing... He said this reminded him of seeing them near the police academy at Oxley, which is not quite an hour's drive southwest of Camp Hill, where Lorraine and Wendy started their hitchhiking from. He noticed a young man sitting in a light green and white E.H. Holden. He described the person in the car as about 20 years of age with a very scruffy appearance. He described the girl who who he would later pick out in photos as Wendy Evans, looking unhappy and sitting on a suitcase. He then saw another man come out of the shop, followed by another girl he would later pick out of photos as Lorraine Wilson. It looked like Wendy did not want to go with the guys, but Lorraine was able to convince her. They all got into the car and sped off. Then Lorraine and Wendy were possibly sighted in Toowoomba, which would be a further hour or so west of Oxley. This was at a service station in Toowoomba. In 2005, a Peter Rogers told police that in 1974, on what he thinks was a Saturday morning, he was at a service station in the Central Business District when he saw Gordon Laurie in a car being driven by another man known to him. He spoke to the driver, who told him they'd picked up two nurses who'd been hitchhiking and they were going to a party that afternoon. A number of witnesses came forward claiming to have met two nurses at a party in Toowoomba. One said one of the nurses told him that they'd hitchhiked from Brisbane and were going to Wendy to collect a car. So at this point, it looks like the Rainham Wendy, after leaving Susan's house at Camp Hill in the morning, had been able to hitch a lift to Toowoomba in a green E.H. Holden at Oxley. There, they had been invited to a party by the two men in the car. One certainly was Boogie Hilton, and it is at this party that things would turn nasty. And also, numerous people at this party would later positively identify Lorraine and Wendy as being there. Now, one shocking account occurred in the house of enormous Spurling, who it looks like lived up the road from the party. Now, if you watch the 60 Minutes episode, this will show you how courageous Lorraine Wilson was and how she wouldn't leave her friend when she was in trouble. Also, it is shocking when it comes to the bystander effect as well. Anyway, I'll read out her account. Mrs Norma Sperling lived near the top of Toowoomba Range Road. In 1989, she told police of an incident she believed had occurred in late 1974. She said she was home around dark when she heard a woman calling from near her back door. She went out and saw a young woman in her laundry who told her she wanted to get away from people who were insisting she go with them to see the mother of one of them. She told Norma the mother lived just down the road. Norma offered to call the police but the girl declined and left. Shortly after, Norma heard a girl scream and looking out a front window, she saw the same girl struggling with a man who was trying to force her into a car. She said there was another man and woman in the back seat of the car who were also yelling and struggling. When she saw pictures of the missing women in the paper a couple of weeks after the incident, she immediately concluded one was the woman she'd seen struggling with the man near the car in the front of her house. She described the woman who had been in her laundry as wearing a cotton dress. She did not come forward at that stage because her husband told her not to get involved. Now when she gave her statement to police, Norma was shown a photo board with 16 images of young men. She picked out the one she said was of similar appearance to the man she'd seen struggling with the girl who'd been in her laundry. It was a photograph of Wayne Boogie Hilton. She said the picture of Lorraine Wilson resembled a girl who'd been in her laundry and who had subsequently been forced into the front seat of the car by the person she believed to be Boogie Hilton. Now, going to see the mother thing, that, that's a bit strange, but maybe it was a ruse to get Lorraine and Wendy in the cars. I, I don't know. It seems a strange thing to ask of someone. But clearly, Norma would have realised that this woman in her laundry was in distress and was then she saw her being forced into a car. Now maybe back in the day in Toowoomba, it was a rough place and this sort of thing was not uncommon to happen and that most people just kept it to themselves. Also, waiting for her husband to get home. Well, t- times have changed, thank God. But as you'll see in the following witness accounts, these two young women, Lorraine and Wendy, reached out for help numerous times without success. It'll make you cry how many times they had contact with others that at least could have called the police anonymously. Also, it seems that those that did contact police were not really taken seriously or their reports investigated urgently. You would think that would just be normal procedure. But as we'll see, not only the witnesses but the police let these two young women down. Now, last week I told you, of a couple of the stories from witnesses on the sixth of October, seventy-four, that were driving and saw who they now think were Lorraine and Wendy. Well, I'll read out a few more of these witness accounts, and they may just bring on the rage. Now, these reports seem to be after the Norma Spurling event and talk about a green Holden on the side of the Toowoomba Range Road with men and women struggling outside of the car. A Mr. and Mrs. Beadle contacted police in 2005, that is 31 years after the event, and told of an incident they had witnessed in 73 or 74 as the family were travelling from Mundabera to Bow Desert. They said they were driving down the range in the early afternoon when they came across two cars pulled off to the side of the road. Initially, they didn't take too much notice, but Mr. Beadle said as they drew nearer, he heard a woman shouting repeatedly, please help. He saw a young woman struggling with a man in the back seat of one of the cars, which he recalled was a Holden and possibly green. He thought there was someone standing outside the same car. He also saw another woman struggling with two men near a second car, which was a little further down the range. Miss Beadle gave a similar account although she thought the cries for help came from the girl near the second car. Mrs. Beadle said at the inquest that the back seat of the second car had been removed and there was a drum standing where it would normally be. She did not stop because they thought the people were just fighting. In their statements, they said they decided not to report the incident to police until they had waited to see if anything about the incident was reported in the news media. In evidence at the inquest, they claimed they went to the Haliden police station, but it was closed. Mrs. Beadle described the man fighting with the girl near the car as well-built, not very tall, between 22 and 26 years old, Caucasian, dark short neat hair, and the second man who grabbed the girl lower down the hill was described as a tall, skinny, messy man. Neither Mr. nor Mrs. Beadle was asked to identify any of those involved using photo boards. It just shows you the inadequacy of the investigation, even in 2005, that these people couldn't even be given photos to try and identify these men. Anyway, let's go on. Another sighting. Melvin Oliver contacted police in 1999. As you can see, these are many years. It's 25 years after the event and he advised that in the early to mid 70s he was working as a farm machinery salesman for a Toowoomba firm. In late September or early October he had an appointment to meet with a farmer at Cominia at 2 p.m. As he went down the range he saw a car parked off to the left hand side of the road. Now he says it's a dull black 1966 Holden but you know this is 25 years later he said three people on the road, two women and one man, in the left-hand lane. He slowed almost to a stop in the right-hand lane and saw one of the girls was seated on the ground with her hands tied behind her back. The other girl was standing nearby. She was being tied up by the man who was wrapping cord around her wrists. He described the man as having shoulder-length, scraggy, unkempt hair and had a bit of a curl in it and was having a tattoo on his right upper arm. Mr. Oliver said he took no action at the time because he assumed what he'd witnessed. Now get this, he assumed what he had witnessed was a student prank. Now, apparently there'd been a spate of them around the town at the time, and the girls didn't call out to him, even though they must have seen his interest in what was happening. He claimed he rang police after the remains of the woman were found in 1976, but no record of this has been located. Hmm, a student prank. Anyway, the, uh, Mr. Vivian and Mrs. Rose Murphy lived in Dalby in 1974 and frequently travelled to Redcliffe to visit a mother. In February 2005, they contacted police after seeing a television program dealing with the case and coming to the conclusion they may have seen something of relevance. Unfortunately, they could not give evidence about when the events they witnessed occurred. The year, month, day or time of day is not clear. However, both say as they were driving down the Toowoomba Range Road with their children in the car, they saw a woman running out onto the road. Mrs Murphy saw a man running after her. She described him as being average build and height with darker hair. She wasn't asked to try and identify him from a photo board. I don't know why, but after they passed slowly by, the woman reached out her hands and cried out, "Help, help." She said she also saw another couple near a parked car off to the left-hand side of the road. Now they were too frightened to stop, but claimed they went to the Helidon police station to report the incident. Mr Murphy claimed he reported what they'd seen. Now a few of these things, like one people, one pair of people say they went to Haliden, but the police station was closed. Another people say they did go there and police did nothing. I mean, this will be a part of where this is so messed up because this is all being reported so many decades after it happened. Now, Mr. Brian and Mrs. Rose Britcher, We spoke about them last week. Now, they reported to police that in October seventy four, their daughter was hospitalised in Toowoomba. They regularly visited her from their home at the bottom of the Toowoomba Range in Lockyer. They claimed on one occasion when travelling down the Toowoomba Range Road returning home on either the weekend of the 6th or 7th of October or on the weekend before, they saw a female struggling with a male person beside the road. They saw a pale-coloured EJ or of course E.H. Holden with very similar cars, parked on the left-hand side of the road. As they passed, they heard the girl call out for help, but they did not stop. As they passed, Mrs. Britcher looked back and saw the man trying to get the girl into the car, and she saw in front of the car two other men and another woman. The detectives who actioned this report made inquiries with the hospital in which the Britch's daughter was a patient and concluded from the admission records they must have been mistaken about the timing of these events. They also found no complaint had been made to police about a woman being assaulted in this vicinity and therefore concluded the report had been eliminated. Now, as you can imagine, if you're screaming on the side of the road and people go past and they report it to police, and when police investigate it, they say, well, we didn't get any report from anyone being attacked, and they just chuck the investigation out or stop it right there. It's just a little bit crazy. You'd think, well, maybe they haven't reported it, either they're so bloody scared or they're dead. But we will go on. Now, this Detective Rouge, he assumed responsibility for the case, he interviewed the couple and took statements from them. Their versions were consistent with their earlier accounts. They said the vehicle they saw halfway down the range was pulled off the road at a 45-degree angle and looked as if it had skidded to a halt. It was a pale green and very faded paintwork and it was in generally a dirty and unkempt condition. The two passenger side doors were open. Mr. Bridges said a man was in the front of the car with his arm around the neck of a young woman. He appeared to be pulling her back towards the car. About 20 yards further down the road, there was another man holding another girl by the arms in a manner which suggested he was trying to force her to walk back up the road. As they drove past this woman, she called out, Help us, or please help us. Mr. Britcher said he slowed the car and almost stopped, but then continued on as he was concerned for the safety of his wife and children, which is fair enough. His wife gave an account in similar terms, consistent in all significant particulars. When shown a colour photograph of Lorraine and Wendy, both said they were the women that they'd seen on the range. Mr. Britcher described the man holding Wendy as slim to medium build, with short dark hair and noticeably muscled arms. He appeared to be 25 to 35 years of age. He described the man holding Lorraine as 5 foot 9 to 5 foot 11 tall, also in the age range of 25 to 35, of medium build with collar length dark brown or black untidy hair. Both were shown a photo board with pictures of 16 young males. A Mr. Britch's type statement is a handwritten notation. Selected Wayne Hilton. Another is similar. Now we have two more eyewitness accounts on Toowoomba Range Road. The first one will be from Robert Styler, he lived in Gatton in 1974, was in a relationship with a woman who lived in Toowoomba. As a result, he frequently drove up and down the range. He recalled that one evening he was driving down the range when he came upon a faded green 1964 Holden sedan. He saw two men struggling with two women. Near the passenger side door, he saw a man known to him as Wayne Hilton, apparently trying to force a young woman into the back seat. The other struggling couple were near the front passenger side mudguard of the car. He did not stop because he knew Wayne Hilton had a reputation for violence. In 1999, when shown a photograph of the two women, he purportedly to identify Wendy as one of the women he saw that night. In his statement, he said that he witnessed the events between 8pm and 10pm. However, at at the inquest, he was unsure of the time, which you can imagine it's decades later. His evidence about when he met Wayne Hilton is confusing and inconsistent, raising doubt as to whether he could have recognised him on the night in question. When pressed on the point, he claimed he'd met the Hiltons and the lorries by that stage. I knew who he was, but I hadn't had anything to do with him at the hotels. His evidence is further undermined by his inaccurate claim that Wayne Hilton was in and out of jail a lot, which at that stage was not true. Now, Like I said, we're talking about decades after this has happened, so we're always going to get these little inconsistencies and time shifts of your memories. But he knew Wayne Hilton, and he picked Wayne Hilton as the guy on the side of the road. Now, Peter Tralka, he went to school in Toowoomba in the 70s, and he said that he knew Wayne Boogie Hilton from school. In a statement made in 1989, he described events that occurred in a period of time in 1973-ish. But in the inquest, he said that his temporal estimate was based on him having moved to Mount Isa to live and work in November 1974. So this was after these events, and he knew the events in question occurred before that. So, 73-74. He said just before dark he came upon an incident on the downhill section of the Toowoomba Range Road which he believed involved Wayne Boogie Hilton. He said he was very familiar with the green EH Holden Boogie Hilton drove. He said he saw it parked on the side of the road. A short distance further downhill was a grey EJ Holden he recognised as one owned or driven by associates of Boogie Hilton, Raymond Davidson and Graham Ferdinand. Between the vehicles he saw a person he believed was Wayne Boogie Hilton struggling with someone on the ground. He concedes he only saw this person from behind and took it to be him because of the vehicle and his dark wavy hair. That person was bending over another person and looked to be trying to pull them back onto their feet. The person on the ground was resisting his actions. Closer to the green, E.H. Holden, another male person was struggling with another person, bending over them and trying to drag them to their feet. He could not say whether either of the persons being restrained was male or female. He believes that there was another woman sitting in the E.H. sedan at the time. The person with Mr. Tralker, called Donald Collins, said to him he believed the second male was Alan shorty Laurie. So now these witness accounts do have certain inconsistencies but the coroner would say that over time is understandable that there would be certain inconsistencies but the central and striking aspects of the event a man or men struggling with a woman or women on the Toowoomba Range Road would remain fixed in the memory of these witnesses as you can imagine. He would go on to say It seems more likely than not something of this nature occurred for so many unconnected people to report having seen it, that the women or woman involved did not complain to police about the assaults or come forward to identify themselves as having been involved after the events received such widespread publicity is consistent with them being unable to do so because they died soon after. Also, no other pairs of females who went missing in this vicinity at around this time remain unaccounted for. All of this leads me to conclude the women seen being assaulted on the downhill section of the Toowoomba Range Road on the 6th of October 1974 were in fact Wendy Evans and Lorraine Wilson. I think from these witness counts that the coroner is pretty spot on there. And you've got to think, at this stage, about 10 people have been asked for help by by at least Lorraine we know of, and not just asked, but she's pleaded for them to help her, and yet nothing. Either she was ignored, or maybe if it was reported to police, they didn't even investigate or even file the report. A very sad state of affairs when bystanders won't stop and help when you're so obviously in desperate need of help. Okay, now I'll wrap up this case next week with witness statements in regards to what actually happened after the Toowoomba Road events on the night of the 6th of October, 1974. I'll discuss who the main suspects were and finish with what the coroner thought had happened given all the statements and evidence. Now, I ask, in fact, friends and relatives have asked me that you share... This episode with as many people as you can. All up, there would be seven women missing or murdered around this time. and No one has been brought to justice. I guess what they came to call it was the Gold Coast hitchhike murders. Now, this wasn't just Lorraine and Wendy. There was also Anita Cunningham and Robin Hoyneville-Bartram. That was uh, before on September 1972. There's Gabriel Yankee and Michelle Riley. That was in October nineteen seventy-three. Of course, then we had Lorraine Wilson and Wendy Evans, October seventy-four, and then we had Margaret Rosewan in May the fifth, nineteen seventy-six. Now I will be covering all these cases, and I ask if anyone has any information to contact Crime Stoppers on CrimeStoppers.com.au where there they've got phone numbers email addresses all these different ways to give them information i mean it was a long time ago but maybe you're now ready to give some information i mean if you don't want to contact them you can even contact me cambo at truecrimeisland.com we can't forget these young women we need to try to find justice if that's all possible so many years after the event <laughs> Okay, so that's the end of this part two, and it will go into part three. You never know; it all depends on what feedback I get the next week. If it goes into a part four, so now I started up, as I said, I've started to upload some of these episodes to YouTube for a greater audience reach. It's just another way that you can listen into the island. At this initial stage, there won't be any fancy video or the camera on me. It'll just be strictly for those that want to listen via YouTube. I've got the Samantha Knight case, the Crump and Baker, the Beaker Schoolgirls case up, a couple more. Subscribe to the channel if you want and share with your mates. So well, let's get to the patron shout-outs now. A big shout-out to Estella Samalung. I think that's how you pronounce your name. Boomfucker. Boomfuckalaka. Boomfuckalunga, Estella. Thank you very much. And to Rob and Wendy Anstey, thank you so much. Boomfuckalunga. Also, thank you to all the previous and present Patreon supporters of the island. It really does make a difference, as you know. True Crime Island is a totally listener-supported podcast. I keep it ad-free, as I know you don't like them, neither do I. If you want to support the island financially, for as little as a dollar a month, you too can become a patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash True Crime Island and check out the levels and rewards. You can also do a one-off donation at paypal.me forward slash forward slash true crime island as christina corrales from peru did this week christina said she may one day get to sydney i hope so too it'd be great to meet you have a beer also you can support the island by getting hold of some merch such as t-shirts hoodies beach towels all that sort of stuff the mugs at rage are there as well remember don't order the black ones they don't print properly so that's all available from truecrimeisland.threadless.com i've got all the links to everything on my website truecrimeisland.com if you don't know so we've got key change lapel pins stickers you can contact me directly for those that can be done by emailing me cambo at truecrimeisland.com it's also the best way to contact me personally for anything else such as case requests or just to say boom fuckalunga and i do get case requests i can't do all of them straight away but I do keep them in the back of my mind. Now, you don't have to spend money to support the island. You can also rate, review and tell your friends, family, workmates about the island. If they don't know how to tune in, show them because the podcast world is huge out there. It's just like, forget about your Netflix and chill. You can podcast and chill listening to the island. Search for True Crime Island on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and join the closed group on Facebook as well. That way you can make comments that no one can see that isn't in the group. Shout out to Curtis in Melbourne. Boom, fuckalunga, mate. So that's about it for the show tonight. Lots of love to Maggie James and I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. As I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom, fuckalunga.